In Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus using a great stream of parables to teach in chapter 13. That's obvious. But what isn't always quite as noticed is how, beginning with chapter 14, we start to find a series of real-time events that have resonances very similar to what we find in parables. Some scholars refer to these scenes as acted-out parables. Case in point, our outcast woman who behaves rather unexpectedly in the gospel scene before us. So, what happens with her and Jesus in this acted-out parable, one might suggest, will speak as much as a parable does about what the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, an expression Jesus often uses when introducing a parable. That, in itself, is interesting enough. And yet, another interpretation of this story supercharged my reflections by suggesting that the woman in question could be credited with initiating the equivalent of a Canaanite Lives Matter movement. I love that. I love it because it affirms how this story is about human yearning for justice. And given the dramatic elements, how the yearning and justice are both essential. Because what runs right alongside the surface narrative is the belief that yearning for justice has to do with God, with hope, and in this case, with ultimacy. Note the presence of the child in the drama. Even a tongue-in-cheek reference to a Canaanite Lives Matter movement emphasizes today's gospel story's connection with present-day human yearning for justice, emphasizes and invites examination of 21st century perceptions of not only justice, but of God and hope and ultimacy. And that may be quite powerful when it comes to reshaping our modern sensibilities and ultimately our behaviors. I say this because some of what the ancients believed about justice, we're in the process of discovering today, and this is something to be very thankful for, some of what was believed back then to be about God or attributable to God doesn't work anymore. It is no longer accepted. It isn't true today. And what's most wonderful is how freeing this is turning out to be, to be in active discernment about what does and doesn't work today, what really is true about God. Julian Jaynes was a highly respected researcher in psychology at Princeton and Yale over a 25-year period ending in 1995. In his seminal, albeit controversial, work, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, Jaynes advances a set of beliefs regarding how the human mind works and how those workings have changed over time. For example, Jaynes proposes that as late as the ancient Greeks, humans didn't consider emotions and desires as stemming from their own minds, but as a consequence of the actions of gods external to themselves. That the human mind once operated in a state wherein cognitive functions were divided 
between one part of the brain which appears to be speaking and a second part that listens and obeys. And it's the breakdown of this two-house or bicameral system that gave rise to the kind of integrated human consciousness we know in the present. And while I am not here to necessarily defend this controversial theory, I confess that some of its resonances actually feel like they make sense, especially when held in tension with, say, the less controversial acceptance of transition in thinking patterns attributable to the Age of Enlightenment, when humans began to move away from acceptance of metaphor and symbol as expressing truth, and started leaning more sharply in the direction of empirical evidence and scientific proof as definitive, equating truth with factuality, or should I say, reducing truth to mere factuality. All of what is referred to as the story of salvation, the scriptures, at least those accepted by Christians and Jews, was recorded between these two stages of human development, between these two collective mental leaps, for lack of a better term. And I'm finding it very exciting that we are living agents of change in human thinking, and here's what I mean. Our woman today is first identified as a Canaanite, a term that was, even in the first century, anachronistic. There hadn't been Canaanites since the time of Joshua, nearly a thousand years earlier. In those days, the people were just entering the Promised Land, and it was a process very much guided by their certainty that God's deepest desire was to, in the words of Deuteronomy, quote, bring you into the land to possess it and drive out before you many nations, including the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and various others. You must totally destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. We can acknowledge that in the minds of the originators of the Deuteronomy stories, God, as they understood God, did indeed command such things. We can acknowledge that in their way of thinking, divine involvement in war was to be expected. We can even allow that they were telling the truth as best they understood it when they found comfort and reassurance in a vision of a God who would harm or kill the thems in order to defend the us's. And without condoning, we can at least understand why they saw God as they did, knowing that if we walked in their sandals, we might be no different. This is part of what, our makes, what makes our gospel passage so significant. The kind of thinking flowing from Deuteronomy turned out to be a powerful identity marker, the most troubling aspects of which insidiously persist. Look at the attitudes of the disciples a thousand years later. They beg Jesus to send the poor Gentile woman away unaided. No mercy. And Jesus, all eyes on him, purposefully plays along, heightening both the tension in the moment and the disciples' attention to it. Making a real teachable moment, he initially spouts the party line. 
I'm only for the lost sheep of Israel, he says. You can almost see the bros in a bunch behind him, arms folded, scowling. Uh-huh. You tell her, bro. Messiah, my buddy. But it's a total setup. Because our woman sort of sweetly pushes back. And it's like there's a, there's a halo around her head as she says, Oh, but I only need a tiny crumb of your compassion. And her temerity makes that halo grow until it's shining light on her sick daughter. It's a very sweet and gentle act of the kind of courage and hope. Well, no, not hope. Certainty. A new kind of certainty about God. Which is totally in God's wheelhouse. You can almost hear the bros sniffling. And kid yourself not. Undercurrents of that Deuteronomic thinking persist to this day. Just think of the history of this nation, how it has systematically devalued the lives of people of color, and the stubborn blindness with which that devaluing persists, the fear of it all. This encounter with the woman turns out to be an opportunity for the disciples to renew their understanding of their own past, and with it, their faith in God. They could not move forward until they understood how what had been a cherished belief, this commanding of destruction of those outside the tribe, how that was actually not really very godly at all. One of our takeaways from this gospel story, then, I suspect, flows from how the original disciples moved forward. Eventually, if you continue to read the story of salvation, they let go of emotional investment in their version of manifest destiny, releasing boundary systems that no longer served new visions of God's loving purpose. And they were able to preserve some of the beauty and sanctity of their history as they shaped their movement forward. And don't forget, their movement forward included a great deal of talking to people, which may speak to us as we try to move forward. No, the church institutional did not remain quite as godly as Jesus surely hoped. But a great many of us still try to do what the first disciples did as we interrogate our own past, shine a light on it, and hold it up in connection with what we now know to be a dynamic, living, and growing understanding of God's dream. Part of what I've been trying to do today is to make it clear that life has a lot of textures. There's a lot more in play, perhaps, than we're actively aware of. Feelings and thought patterns in us and all around us, which are powerfully influenced by historical elements that go way, way back. We are points on a graph of linear time. And there's a sensibility growing in me that asks how our awareness of these human complexities can be harnessed in better service of beloved community. Will we double down on the God who justifies things like manifest destiny 
and continue building a nation that structures into its very self the devalued lives of people of color? Or can reflection upon a Canaanite Lives Matter movement help us better live into Black Lives Matter as repair of the structures of all our relationships? Violence, like slavery and racism, was normative to our past. It's still far too common in the present. What could it be like for us to tell the tales of our past in ways that will make our future less violent? The time has come to stop defending acceptable violence as sacred violence. No longer are such accounts allowed to have the final word. We can't cover them up, hiding them like a loaded gun in a drawer. We must confidently expose them to the light of day. And then, get about telling new stories beside them and living those stories out loud. Stories so beautiful and good that they will turn us person by person, story by story, toward better visions of kindness, reconciliation, and peace. For our future, and please God, for our children's future. Amen.